0: Um, You've actually done a great job on on the sound desk today, Becky. I was very impressed setting it up. She kind of sorted it all out in due time. Uh, Taylor's gone, but she did a great job with the slides as well. A couple of funny things there with the program. It kind of puts them in the order that it thinks rather than the order that we might want. So sometimes it kind of jumps around a bit, but otherwise it's been pretty good. So I just wanted to really thank Tim for leading us the way he did. And I didn't even really think of Isaiah 43, but it's a pretty cool uh, chapter, a pretty cool verse. And I remember when we all got flooded out at uh, Easterfest that year when Switchfoot were playing and the whole thing flooded and we were knee-deep. I remember Joe, oh, I just remember that actually saying, that verse came to her mind as we fled for our lives through the raging waters, trying not to get electrocuted while the Switchfoot lead singer was hanging off the, uh, off the cages and stuff, singing singing his heart out. Anyway, um, Thanks, John Foreman, I think his name is. Anyway, so this next sermon is number two in our Deep Water series. And we have talked about this as being our Deep Water year. And I kind of came up with a couple of clever little titles. So I kind of thought, well, the first one was put out into deep water. And we looked at Peter being asked and his friends to go out into deep water to go and find her another catch after they'd been there all night. It's been fascinating, as Tim said, to see the stories of real deep water and see, as Tim was saying, that kind of paradoxical one, mysterious, cool, and on the other, just flat-out scary. So today, we're actually going flat-out scary, life-threatening, intense. We're going into a deep-water storm, which is why I've called it call-out so this first one, or the first one we did was put out. This one's call out. The next one was going to be step out. You can probably guess where that might be going with Peter again. Uh, but this one is call out in deep water. And as we will see, there's probably a very good reason to be scared of deep water. It can be quite threatening, figuratively and literally. I don't know if anyone's been in a storm before out in the ocean, out in the uh, deep water. I had... I had friends that wanted to have an adventure, so two mates, they left Brisbane and decided to sail to the Solomon Islands and they got caught on the bottom part of a cyclone. And they said it was the most terrifying thing that they've ever been through and it went on for days and days and days with this small boat just being tossed to and fro and they didn't actually think they were going to live. So deep water can be something really, really scary. And I guess we should just refresh ourselves on what our little definition of deep water is, because we're using it as a guiding metaphor, but I don't, want it to, I don't want us to lose sight of what this actually means. And really, it's quite simple. It just means that you are having to now adopt a whole bunch of new dependencies. You are, whatever dependencies you've had in life and in the normal sort of routine of life, you're now out of your depth. And so those dependencies, if you think about it literally, the way you walk, the way you run, it, that doesn't work in water. If you try that, you'll drown very quickly. Everything changes. Your whole mode of behavior, your attitude, once you're in deep water, it has to change. And the true nature, perhaps, of those land-based dependencies are shown for what they are when you are in the storm or when you're in the deep water. So that's it. That's really just a quite a simple definition uh, about deep water and thinking through dependencies. So I've taken this year to having this today, if you remember. Today, if you remember nothing else, remember this. So today, if you remember nothing else, but before we go, I've made it really simple today. Uh, do you remember the first one? Today, if you remember nothing else, it was from our Deborah. Oh, well done. March on my soul, be strong. You have remembered. March on my soul, be strong from Deborah. You could go back a few weeks, have a listen to that. Listen to Ben's sermons as well. They're all really good. The next one was a little bit longer, which was, guide me in your truth and teach, teach me for you are God, my saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. That'd be pretty important, I think, for today's sermon as well, But that Psalm 25.5. Today's is just simply, follow me. Not me, Jesus. Jesus said that. Follow Jesus. Follow me. That's it. So today, if you remember nothing else, remember what? Follow me. Follow me. Today, if you remember nothing else, follow Jesus. Because what you're going to see is the deep water storm actually brings out all types of followership. We might think we're following Jesus, but once we're in the deep water storm, we actually find out who we're really following or what we're really following. So we're going to do a little psych test. Psych tests are important. Sometimes we like to use the antithesis test or the opposites test just to see what we think of certain things. And by using the opposite of something, sometimes we can see the true nature of the thing that we're actually wanting to think of. So we're gonna be thinking a bit about faith today in deep water, but before we get there, let's just do a little bit of a warm up to that question. So the first question is, the opposite of love is? You sure? Apathy, oh cool, so we're thinking a bit deeper. But but your intuitive thing is hate, hate. So you know straight away, if someone's hating you and if they're showing it and maybe they're cruel to you and all that kind of stuff, that is not love. And you know it by its antithesis, by its opposite. The opposite of joy is sorrow, or I put sadness, same kind of thing. So again, if you were to think about sadness, it would actually probably create an absence within you. go, oh, is there something else? And, and well, Oftentimes when we are sad, we're yearning for something. We're yearning for something else. We, we, don't, we don't want to stay sad necessarily for a long time. We don't want to stay depressed. So again, you can kind of get a bit of a feel of what joy is. The opposite of faith is disbelief, doubt. Any others? Feel like a... <laughs> I'm like pointing. Why am I pointing? Yeah, well I, I put doubt. My first my first yeah. <laughs> My first my first thought was doubt. Uh, the opposite of faith is doubt. And then as I got into this story, and you might want to just turn there now in Matthew 8 from verse 23, this deep water storm story, I was like, I don't think actually the opposite of faith is doubt. And I'm gonna, I think show you why, and hopefully, without getting all cutesy or anything, just see it for what it actually is, see faith for what it is, particularly in the way it would have been understood in the first century. We've actually got a lot of good scholarship now that even the Reformers didn't have in the the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, all those guys, they didn't even have some of the documents we have today, i.e. the early church fathers, not in their current form anyway. They didn't have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and what we found is by looking at literature from the first century, we suddenly get a really fresh understanding of perhaps even these most basic fundamental words like faith, which is pistos in Greek. So we'll just hold that for a minute. Uh, and we're going to go into, like I said, we will hold that thought. We're going to go into Matthew 8, 23. We're going to go to that passage. And I think most of you would be there. And whether you're looking at it on your smart device or your Bible, you probably notice there's a lot of textual headings in this chapter. Have you seen that? Like little chunks of text, headings what i encourage you to do from time to time if you can is get another version that doesn't have all the textual headings the textual headings are, are, are very good and they're helpful but oftentimes they can disrupt the flow and they can disrupt what is being intended by matthew in this case or mark or luke or, whoever, or any of the other writers because of these pericopes these are just textual chunks um, they're not inspired those textual chunks in in as they the headings are not inspired is what i mean the rest of it is. And so as we think about this question, what is the opposite of faith? We're going to ask the question, what is the opposite of faith in this story? Now, if you look at 822, and you can even put, if you've got a little textual bit, put, put your finger over it, put your finger over the heading between 822 and 823. What do you see? What do you see just above before they go into the storm? You see, what is it? Follow me. What is the one thing we're going to remember today? Follow me follow me. So it's not just Adrian's words. It's Jesus saying, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And you can go into that story another time. But if you roll back the scriptures, if you were to scroll up, you could even quickly do it now. If you can find your place again, you'll see Jesus is uh, performing miracles. He's having these faith encounters with leaders and he's confounding these leaders. He's got this dynamic teaching going on. Matter of fact, if you scroll up, you'll see it's what? The Sermon on the Mount. So the disciples have been with Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, miracles, uh, people healed, people coming to Jesus, Jesus teaching with authority. Disciples have seen all that. And then it flows into this story of this man who says, yeah, I'll follow you. And then, Jesus, and then he says, oh, I just got to go and bury my, 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 my parents or whatever, or my dad. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Let the dead bury their own dead. Come, follow me. So what's the very next Word. If you've got your finger over the textual heading, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. <laughs> Eddie's got it. So literally, the disciples are following him. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? Like if today, if Jesus showed up, it'd be a lot easier. He could just say to us, follow me. Out the door he goes. Well, well there's no theolog- the- theologizing here. We we'll just get up and follow him. See where he goes. He'll probably go to the Amarok no, I don't know what car he'd go. He might just walk. But you know what I mean? Like, we could just follow him. So, what tends to happen when we're reading about the historical Jesus and the Jesus in the Gospels, because it is a, a history, we tend to spiritualize. And I don't want to do that today too much. There's just something very basic about, if you remember nothing else today, remember what? Follow me, follow me, follow me. So, he gets into the boat, and we're told there that his disciples follow him. In Mark, we're told there's actually other boats that go with him. So there's other probably disciples beyond the 12, maybe, that are around in a bit of a flotilla, perhaps. But in 8.23, he gets in the boat and his disciples followed him. So, so far, they followed him through watching. Think about it. Watching Jesus perform miracles. It's quite comfortable watching. It's quite comfortable being an audience. They probably had to walk a bit. So far, they've watched him teach. They've watched him put the religious leaders in their place, which they probably enjoyed. They've followed him to, you know, pretty much a church service, except outdoor church service, massive church service, the Sermon on the Mount. But now where are they having to follow him? Across the lake. And I'll show you a map here in a minute. But when they go across the lake, they're going across this big deep water lake called the Sea of Galilee. It's called a sea because it's so massive. And it's relatively deep and so forth. And on the other side are the Gerasenes, which is where the demons are, the tombs. That's where they find the legion of demons inhabiting that man. So, so now it's not just watching Jesus. Things are starting to heat up. They're going, they don't even they know what they're getting into yet. And before they even get there, there's this big broad expanse of water between them and their followership of Jesus. Will they continue to follow him through this deep water storm. If you remember nothing else today, remember this. Follow me. Jesus has said, follow me. They follow him. So here's the sea, a picture of it. Like I said, it's a massive sea. Well, in today's terms, it's probably bigger lakes and stuff. But for them, it, it was massive, big enough to build up a bit of a storm. It's known as the Sea of Galilee. It's known as the Sea of Kinnereth the Lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Tiberius, and sometimes simply the lake. And you might go, why is there so many names? Is this one of these other problems in the Bible? No, no, no. Around the Sea of Galilee were all types of culture. On one side were mainly Jewish people. On the other side, there was a lot of, like in the Decapolis and so forth, there was a lot of uh, Gentiles, non-Jewish people. So they all had different names for it. The Romans, they liked to name things after their emperors. So they named it the Sea of Tiberius. And again, I always, I always get this weird sense of pleasure when I just Google stuff out of the Bible, like names of the Sea of Galilee. You go, oh, here it is. And go to Google Earth and zoom in. Oh, wow. I wonder if that was the bit of water that Jesus went across. It's just so cool that we worship a God that's not mythological. Anyway, as you probably heard before, this sea is about 600 foot below sea level. It's got these mountains all around it, 1,500 to 2,500 feet high. So Tumba, does anyone know how high Toowoomba is in feet? About 2,000 feet 2,000 feet high, yeah, about 600 metres or so. So you can imagine you get this confluence of event, you get this meteorological phenomenon where you've got lots of hot air from the desert and stuff, hits the moisture of the sea or the lake of Galilee. And because of these very sharp, narrow uh, hills, you get this big macro scale Venturi effect and you get this kind of, um, not a superstorm, but you get very intense storms, very intense storms. And they come up really quickly and suddenly, And so you can get in the boat like the disciples have and look, oh yeah, cool, we'll go. It's nice and open and flat and calm. Now put yourself here, put yourself here because up till now, like I said, it's all been pretty cool, pretty peaceful kind of followership, not too demanding. But now, now it gets pretty stormy. I was so pleased to find this painting. It's probably three or 400 years old. Anyone know who painted this? Johanna does, but she's not allowed to say. no. Come on, help me. Come on, you, we've got to be more cultural than this. So it's Rembrandt. I wouldn't have known either unless I'd Googled it. So I'm gonna, we're going to zoom in on it. A What's really interesting, this, no one knows where this painting is anymore. It was stolen in 1990. It's never reappeared. And in fact, in the museum where it was stolen, they still have the empty frames almost as a sign of mourning or something. Uh, no one knows what happened. In 2013, the FBI said they know who's responsible and people expecting it to reappear, but it still hasn't reappeared. Now, what I love about Rembrandt's works, we went and saw an exhibition down in Melbourne, is he's unashamed in his detail. So he, he's the one that did the self-portraits as he got older, and he holds nothing back. He could have made himself look regal and imposing. Instead, he just, all the wrinkles are there, you know, the sagging of the face, et cetera, It's all there. He doesn't hold back. And here, it's not very good on the big screen here. Here, you'll see the same thing, this amazing detail. Now, again, he doesn't get everything right. He's, he's, painting from his perspective. So everyone is remarkably white. They would have been way more olive skin than that. Jesus in particular is very white. But uh, the detail, you can tell he's read this passage and he hasn't just read this passage. He's really thought about it. I mean, have a look at that. You can kind of see some of it there. Down the bottom, there's a guy vomiting. (laughs) Seasick. You've got all the the whole spectrum of someone or people that are in an intense situation, you know, the whole fight, flight, freeze thing you've got it all there. You've got the fighters, they're all just like fighting the sea. They're like bailing out furiously, trying to pull the sails down. You've got the kind of flight people just, you know, rushing to Jesus. You've got the freezers. You've got guys kind of just huddled down, just hoping it all go away. Uh, fascinating detail, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But basically, uh, as we come back to the passage now, verse 23, he gets into the boat. Like I said, Mark says there are other boats with him and his disciples follow him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping and the disciples went and woke him and said, Lord, save us. We are going to drown. So I'll just zoom in on some of these faces. And you see a bit of fear, but I reckon you see something else, which I think Rembrandt is spot on. What do you, it's probably hard for you to see there. It's a bit of anger. Like, look at Jesus' face. It's almost startled. like, are you about to hit me? And you think, what's that about? Now you have to understand that in a storm, have you ever been in a storm on the land? So say, would I still, without amplified audio, would I still be talking in a normal voice like this? No, you have to yell. So imagine now the water against the boat, the wind, the roar of the waves, you're yelling. So it wouldn't just be, Jesus, don't you care? Jesus, will you save us? They would be yelling. They'd be yelling to to each other. Now, I did some calculations because I wanted to know how many fishermen were on this boat. We know for certain there were five fishermen on this boat. If it's the 12, there's at least five of them. And Peter, James, John, Andrew, and there's a fifth, maybe Jude, maybe. um, They are scared. And it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because they're yelling out at the carpenter's son. Again, there's this thing that's going on. But the wind is you know—it's driving waves over the boat. It's filling with water. We can see that in the other gospel accounts. It's being swamped. And Jesus is in the stern. I always get the stern and the bow of a sh- I'm not Navy, I'm Army. So I always get the, the, the two mixed up. But does anyone know where the stern is? The back. <laughs> I thought it was in the front for a while. It was in the back. Do you know where the pilot would normally sit, the steerer dude? In the back with the tiller. So Jesus is right there and we're told he's he's sleeping on a cushion. So he's probably right in the pilot's position. Now Rembrandt shows it as just next to the pilot. And you've got these five fishermen and they're super scared and they're crying out. This is bad. You've got your five experts on the sea. I'm sure they've seen storms before. This is bad. Their their ship is going, their little boat is going down. All their fisherman-based dependencies have just gone out the window. They would have tried it all. You can see in Rembrandt's picture, someone trying to bring the sail down. They've probably bailed out water. Someone on the tiller trying to keep it into the waves so it doesn't tip over and capsize. They tried it all, and none of their land-based, fisherman-based dependencies work for them. Now, I really believe, for us, when we go into a deep water situation, there's a bit of behavioural inertia that occurs because we're still trying to operate as though everything is normal and that's just not the case we need in this moment to acknowledge very quickly that we're in a new paradigm, we're in a new situation and in the deep water there is a new type of behaviour, a new focus, a new technique even that is required and we might say well why has Jesus led them them in this reality because Jesus led them. bit mean, isn't it? bit cruel. Like, imagine, imagine if you could keep your kids perfectly safe, but you took them in a boat and just scared them, scared the pants off them. I mean, we would go, what kind of parent does that? That's pretty mean. It's pretty nasty. But if we believe in Jesus who goes to the cross for us, and we take a cross-based, love-based cruciform, it's called in theology, perspective, we go, wait a minute, there must be something going on here, something that Jesus is so concerned about that he's willing to let a little bit of salt water get up our nose. He's willing to actually let us get really, really scared. And I do believe it is to do with us just being watchers, being entertained, not really engaged. The truth hasn't been given to, in the Christian life, satisfy your curiosity or entertain you. It's been given to transform you. And Jesus is not content just to leave you as a watcher, as a congregant, as an audience member. He'll take you out in that boat, get you very wet, get you very scared. It's a rugged kind of love. But he loves us too much to leave us as we are. He wants us to grow. And don't be too put off by this because I've used Johanna a lot in my deep water sermons so far. Well, there's only been two, really. Um, some cool pictures there. But, you know, when we took the girls to the ocean for the first time and we let them go out into the waves a bit, Johanna was so keen and excited. And, and then the first wave just absolutely dumped her. And she came out like looking like a, a drowned kind of puppy or something. And, you know, she ran out. And I think to myself, if I'd have gone, okay, in that moment, if I listen to Johanna, she's probably going Daddy, daddy, why did you put me here? This is so cruel. This is so mean. What, how could you? And maybe child protection are on the beach and they're running towards me about to take me off. Like, No, that doesn't happen. Because now, even in Marimbula, now she knows that there are ways you can deal with the waves. You can deal with the ocean and you can actually enter into a new experience that you've never had before. And imagine if Jesus is fully intent on having a people, a kingdom people, that when they go into the deep water storm, they're actually able to rise above in some way those circumstances. Now, this is, this is a big demand, isn't it? On, what, here in the storm, or any storm, this is a big demand. But I really believe this is what Jesus wants. And if Jesus says it, well, if he says, remember nothing else, remember this, follow me, follow me, and he wants to take us into a storm, He wants something special for his people. He wants his people to be special. And I think about the world and I think about all the things that you potentially will go through if the Lord gives you your 70, your 80, your 90 years. You're going to have some, and already have. We've had people in this church already with real deep water experiences. But imagine if there's something different. Imagine if there's something along the lines of what Jesus perhaps expects here. I mean, what 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 do you expect? We sort of get pious and stuff, and we expect after what the disciples have have seen to be completely calm, and you know they're they're riding with the Son of God. But what does what does Jesus expect? Like I said, what he gets is this flight, fight, or freeze. And you can imagine if you're yelling at someone over the storm, you're probably angry. Jesus asleep in the stern. What has he done? And this is not whatever Jesus is expecting. This is not it. This is not the stuff of faith. Because we know, because he's about to rebuke them. Angry faces, scared faces. But you look at Jesus' face here. And again, it's intriguing. It's, it's almost like he's startled. It's got me interested. That's not necessarily biblical, but I bet there's... What? So two rebukes come. Two rebukes. And you, the order is very interesting and I think very significant. In one, and I like the mark, version in Mark. Basically, the first rebuke is to the storm. So we're told in Mark 4:39, he rebukes the wind and he says to the waves, "Quiet, be still." Now again, this would have been a shout. I don't, no doubt in my mind, he would have shouted, "Quiet, be still." So the Son of God rebukes the towering waves. The Son of God rebukes the thunderous wind. And they just stop. I mean, we can't even get that response from our kids when they're mucking about. Bang, stop, done, calm. Disciples, wow. The other rebuke is this. Matthew 8, 26. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? In Mark, it gets a little bit sharper than that. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And if you look through the gospel of Mark, you'll see him actually go, what, are you still so thick-headed? You'll see that a few times. Mark actually says they were stiff-necked, they were kind of hard. Jesus says, where is your, where is your faith? And it's not what you expect, is it? It's, 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 you kind of expect, rebuke the waves, accept a bit of worship perhaps, maybe a bit of a pat on the head for the fishermen that are upset. Instead, he rebukes them. And like I said, the order is, I think, really important. Because in Matthew, again, if you looked at the passage where we are now, what comes first? The rebuke to the waves or the rebuke to the disciples? Have a look. Have a look. Verse verse 26. Yeah. He says, he replies, You of little faith, why are you so, so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the wave. So again, we're saying to be heard, you would have to shout. So he shouted, you of little faith, sorry to scare you, you have little faith, <laughs> over the wind, over the waves, and they're like, and straight away, be quiet to the waves and to the wind. So if the son of God, who we know will go to the cross for these people, go to the cross for us, if he, if he rebukes them in the middle of a storm, there's got to be something important there for us, don't you think? Sometimes we've just spiritualized faith. Sometimes we theologize faith away. Sometimes we read our favorite authors and, you know, we're told faith is this and faith is that. Look, I wonder if those pictures of faith that were given in modern times fit this rebuke of Jesus. I wonder if our little antithesis experiment, the opposite experiment, faith equals doubt, actually... Um, Fits this picture, because Jesus doesn't go, stop doubting. In fact, he rarely says that. The only time he says that is to Thomas later on, stop doubting. And even there, it's almost sort of this idea of being without faith, not maybe necessarily doubting. Because if, if it is just doubt, we often take doubt and we say, right, doubting, I don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. I don't necessarily believe the promises or I've got these issues with the Odyssey. You know, how can a good God allow evil? And yet Jesus never really addresses any of that stuff. And you think, because that is the cry of our world. Oh, show me truth. Show me evidence. Show me facts. And believe me, I have gone and looked at the evidence. I've looked at historical texts in antiquity. I love all the, the things I subscribe to, like Cosmos magazine. Like, I, I, think, I think we need to deal with doubt. But I think we also need to acknowledge that Jesus doesn't deal with it too much. He doesn't here say the opposite of faith is doubt. Stop doubting. He actually gets a little bit stern with them. It's a bit like Tim from Isaiah 43. There's a bit of sternness there. Aren't you glad now, though, that because of what Jesus is about to do on the cross, you don't have to be wiped out because of God's extreme holiness. You now have redemption and hope. So he shouts at them. Then he shouts at the storm. And note, Jesus only generally shouts to be heard over loud storms. He's not like that kind of guy. But what, what, what do you reckon, though? What do you reckon? What do you reckon the opposite of faith is in this story? Pardon? No? Again, because that's, yeah, unbelief. And we're going to get to that in a minute. I'm glad you brought it up because we're going to get to what faith is. We generally say doubt, maybe unbelief. But if we see doubt as the opposite of faith, I actually think we miss the point of this story. And we miss something fundamentally important in our Christian walk. Because when we go, oh, I'm doubting and I don't believe, it's sort of like powerlessness, it's helplessness, it's a learned helplessness. It's like, well, Jesus hasn't dealt with my doubts, so I can darn well be scared in this boat if I want to be scared. Or I can darn well feel helpless in whatever thing is ailing me in that deep water storm. And then we go, don't you care, God? Haven't you showed me yet, God? Or are you even there, God? I'm going to become an atheist, God. So why would Jesus rebuke them and us? Because we know better than them. We'd be the same as them. We need to understand, I believe, how faith is seen in the early days. And I'm so glad for modern scholarship that has brought out these old manuscripts. And you can go back and look at the Greek manuscripts, not just of the Bible, but ancient texts and go, what is faith? And what we find is faith isn't just a creed. It isn't just a mental assent. It isn't just a sort of a flipping on of conviction in your brain to say, yes, now I believe it's way more than that in the ancient world. And I'll tell you, it's revolutionized my thinking on, 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 my, on my followership of Jesus. Did you know, for example, and, and i tell you, Augustine didn't know this because uh, he he, all he had was Latin. He didn't have a Greek Bible. He, he didn't read Greek. So the reformers, they didn't have these ancient patriarchs and so forth. But did you know that faith and faithfulness in Greek are exactly the same word? Faith and faithfulness are exactly the same word. You might go, oh, that's not that important, is it? Well, actually it is because it's not just that trust and that dependence on Jesus. It's actually embodied. It's coming out in some way. You can see faithfulness. It's not just a noun, it's a verb. And I know we've talked about this many times before. But what we see now is that faith in ancient times had three basic dimensions. Yes, trust, dependence, mental mental affirmation, but it was way more than that as well. It was professed confession to Jesus as the cosmic Lord and enacted loyalty through obedience to Jesus as the king. So a scholar called Matthew Bates has brought this to our attention. Enacted loyalty, the word we use for that is allegiance. So faith is not just, I believe in you, Jesus, and saying the Nicene Creed and getting into membership as a church. Faith is faithfulness. Faithfulness is trust, dependence, allegiance and followership, which now, what is the opposite of faith now? (laughs) New word for you? It's not that new. Dumb word, really. But I think it hopefully gets the meaning across. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unfollowership. It's unallegiance. So the picture that Jesus is painting here or the one that Mark is painting and Matthew and Luke is, Jesus is going across, He's gonna go through the storm. Will you show your allegiance to him? Even when the fear comes, will you show your allegiance to him? Will you continue to follow him? Because remember what I said at the start, if we remember nothing else, remember this, follow me. And it actually works with doubts as well in some weird way, some weird regressive circular reasoning kind of way, which actually I kind of like, which is, even if you're having doubts, will you follow me through your doubts? Will you show your allegiance to me through your doubts? So that might, for you, mean, you actually do something about your doubts. You actually go and start researching and and you take some risks. I've had to take many risks. I've had many problems with this book of books. And every single time I go through and I look at it, I I come to a new and deeper and fresher understanding of Jesus. And I hope that you've seen some of that. I mean, who would have thought that out of Jephthah, you could be brought closer to Jesus? Go back and you'll see how he did that in the mega series. Follow me. You can be a follower of fear, but you won't be a follower of Jesus. You can be a follower of prestige, of accolades, of lust, of stuff, of materialism, but you won't be a follower of Jesus. That, by definition, is unfollowership, which by definition is unfaithfulness. Faith is trust, dependence, allegiance, followership through the storm, through the deep water storm. Even through doubts, through temptations, through trials. And it's it's demanding, isn't it? I mean, it's very demanding. Allegiance through the storm. Follow Jesus, follow fear. Allegiance through doubts. Follow Jesus, follow doubt. These are the choices. Now they're following him. The disciples are following him. And wow, they're scared. Now, fear, I found, is actually quite a good servant. If you're at the beach. This is what Johanna gets worried about sometimes. And they say there's sharks in the water and you get afraid. You should be afraid and you should stay out of the water. But if it then becomes a master in your life and you never go on the water again, that is not a good thing. Even here, fear should have actually just been a nudge on the chin. See that guy up there? Even though you're afraid, show your allegiance to him now. So what did Jesus expect? I expect or I think that he expected them to show allegiance to him even through the storm. I think he expected to be woken up. I, expect, I, ex, I think he expected to be kind of shaken, but I don't think he expected to have people angry at him and like thinking they're about to die. And I think they expected that no matter what, even if that ship went down, if he was the son of God, he could raise them up and resurrect them. Same, same in our storms. He wants to see that kind of felt followership. You know, even with this sermon, it's easy to, Oh, I don't know, thinking, oh, was this entertaining or did it, did it keep me interested? And I, I, honestly, I don't care. I don't care anymore. I used to care a lot. I used to really bug me. I used to bug me and I'd show up and there's not like, you know, everyone here. And I, I just don't care. Like, I'm so thankful that you've come. And I just want you to know that if you hear Jesus' deep water call today, then he doesn't want you to be entertained or interested. He just wants you to be transformed. He wants you to be different. He wants you to be that kingdom woman, that kingdom man that isn't driven along by the winds of circumstance. Yeah, you experience fear, but you know exactly what to do with that fear. You become something special in the world because of that. How much on Twitter is driven by fear? How much are politicians over this, this um, election campaign, how much are they using fear? Oh, the boats are going to come and override us, and terrorists are going to come. Oh, if if one politician gets in, this is going to happen. It's all fear, fear, fear. You live in a culture of fear-mongering, literally. What about if you're a kingdom person and goes, I will look to Jesus. I will follow him. I will show him my allegiance. I will continue to love my enemies. I will continue to give things up for him. I will continue. I will not follow fear. Imagine if Jesus is willing now, because you think about what happens next in the story. What does happen next in the story? They are completely bewildered by his power. And one day we'll see something like that. We will be blown away by his power and his glory. We sung about it before. But, you know, you think, oh, Jesus was a bit stern. Yep, good, because that was that rugged love that they probably needed. But imagine again if Jesus is willing to take the disciples' unfollowership to the cross with him. You are so well covered now. Because you can trip and stumble, fall, have you kind of... Moments where you get really scared and maybe even get angry at Jesus or decide you're going to be an atheist for a while or something like that. But because of who Jesus is, while you are faithless, while you do not show your allegiance, he is faithful. That's what we're told in Timothy. That's pretty cool. And as long as you're still alive, you can know that he is going to continue to come for you. So he's taking the disciples' unfollowership to the cross. We know Peter's about to trip, stumble, fall in really bad ways. But we also know that Peter gloriously makes a comeback. That's another story. But think of them in the future. Peter, the denier, then the super preacher. And it just makes me think, oh, God, bring, bring, bring us, this little church, this, this precious few to deep water transformation. So I'm just going to pray to finish off with, and then we're going to progress into a time of communion. And we're going to think about the Lord Jesus Christ who is also the rebuker of the storm, the rebuker of our fear following, the rebuker of our materialism following. I'm going to pray. This is a prayer that I wrote a while ago. and It's a prayer for every day, really. Father, from right now and for all of today, to you, attune our hearts. Attune our hearts to your heart and your call. May it become our call. Make our hearts pilgrim hearts. Make us strong in your mighty strength. From right now and for all of today, keep us pursuing your kingdom and your righteousness. Keep our eyes fixed on you. Please lead us in the way everlasting. Take us from strength to strength until we all appear before you in Zion. Please, Father, create within us a clean heart and renew minute by minute a right spirit within us. From right now and for all of today, search us and know us. See if there's any offensive way in us. See if there is self-pride, self-want, self-deceit. Please, Father, create within us a humble heart. Create within us a teachable heart. From right now and for all of today, keep us abiding in your presence. Keep us humble. Keep us free from vanity. From right now and for all of today, open us up to your precious Holy Spirit. Keep us in step with your Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit. Do not let us grieve your spirit. And if we do, have mercy and teach us a better way. From right now and for all of today, O Father, will and act within us and we will obey your call and wear the name well, the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. The name above every other name, the name of our King and Lord, the name of the one to whom every knee will bow, the name of the one whom every tongue will confess, the name through whom we pray, Jesus, hallelujah, hosanna, Maranatha, so be it. Amen. We now celebrate the Lord Jesus, who is also the God of the deep water storm, who in a sense has taken all the consequences of that storm, the terror of that storm, the intensity of whatever storm you may go through and bundled it up into his own body and taken it, taken it for you. What a saviour.